Hi guys, welcome back to my show, Into the Light, a different life story with me, your host, Stefan Neff. First of all, press that subscribe button down there. Do me the favor. Let's spread the word. Let's spread the news that there is hope out there and that the past does not equal the future. And that's what we're doing on this channel. So don't be silly. Just press that subscribe button and tell your friends. Today is another fantastic day for an interview, and I've got Nate Dukes with me. Nate is a fellow author who has just written, You'll Never Change. And the moment I read the title of the book, I knew I had to have him on because that's the, the, the thought that goes through so many loved ones, through so many that must have gone through my wife's head for a long time, even after I came back from rehab. And I was all, yay, I'm, I'm all, look, I've done all that hard work. And yeah, yeah. The old adage, uh, how do you know that an addict is lying? His lips move? Well, that's unfortunately true because we have been the masters of, of hiding, the masters of, of doing stupid things. And yeah, it is what it is. And therefore, I'm, I'm so humbled and, and happy that I've got Nate here to share a bit his story and, and bring his addiction out into the open. And that is the biggest step for any addict. So, Nate, thank you so much for writing your book and thank you so much for coming on to my show. Hey, I am so honored to be here. This is, I love your show. I love what you are doing. I am honored to be a part of this thing and really start to share my own strength, my own hope, my own courage, my own story with the hope that other people's stories would be changed. Indeed. Indeed. And we were, we were initially thinking about a nice title for you. And it's, it's clear from Coke dealer to hope dealer. There is there, there it is. Honestly, that is, it's perfect. So how did you start out when you were six, were you planning? Okay. I think I am gonna be, Oh, if we mix a bit of Xanax and a bit of that, that should be cool to start school with. Uh, what did you want to be when you're a young man? So when I was growing up, we were the poor family and we didn't have a whole lot. And I'll be honest with you. It was like um, my parents were trying to, they were kids raising kids is what it was. And unfortunately they had some broken mindsets themselves. And I, I don't blame my parents for anything. They were just trying to do the best that they could with what they had. And unfortunately what they had was some broken ways of thinking. And, and oftentimes when you're in that environment, those broken mindsets become your mindsets. And so when I was a kid, uh, I knew that I, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be significant because I felt trapped. I felt um, lost and I felt like I, I wasn't special growing up. And so when I grew up, I knew I wanted to do something with my life, something of significance, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to be yet. Cool. Same here. Wrong side of the tracks and uh, yeah, never much money around. 
wrong mindset, very true. My parents were very much into alcohol and mm. the odd prescription drug in the sense of it was the 70s um, for them and the GPs uh, quite happily handed out uh, diazepam for stress, etc. And certainly I remember my mum sitting after the dinner table with a glass of wine or four and uh or a beer whatever it was she drank and then oh it's so beautiful oh i feel so relaxed uh oh, after she took it as a pam and that was all sort of that was the 70s that was what doctors did, what she did, uh, and a whole raft of women ended up in trouble, certainly in Germany around about that time, with that attitude. So doctors have always got something to answer for. And we come to that in your part of the story, because prescription drugs are certainly one of the hugest problems out there in the United States, but also everywhere else. Yeah, my first drug dealer wore a white coat. That's, there you go. that's who he was. <laughs> and uh, um, I went to him every month, <laughs> right on time. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least the, the prices were not so so high at that time. <laughs> but let me guess, the first drug dealer, are we talking about ADHD or ADD? Uh, and what was the first drug that they tried on you? Yeah, Adderall, right away, right off the rip. Fuck. That's what I... Yeah. <laughs> there Why was. not cocaine? Why not cocaine? Yeah. It's just much nicer. It's sort of, you know, it doesn't leave too much evidence. Well, mind you, Adderall doesn't need it. And I'm, I'm facetious here because there is very much a place for medications in some children. Absolutely. I think the, the, the problem that we are facing is that there are so many children nowadays who are medicated and one wonders if that is indeed a matter of better diagnosis and therefore the hope that we can actually help these children or if that is just, I don't know, it's probably multifactorial, but... Yeah, you are. I, I have my own opinions on it. I don't know how popular they are, but well, um, this is your show. This is, yeah. uh, you know, say say it. I mean, this was your this was your sure. journey. I think that anytime you have a financial gain from somebody recovering from anything, there's always going to be a, f a potential for corruption. And so, uh, if somebody has a financial edge over uh, people who could use this drug to get better, or they could also go into some therapy and have some of the harder conversations and the training that were requires to actually get a, a grip on some of your emotional states and your mental states, but also how we respond to things. Those are, those are difficult. It's in my opinion, it's easier to take a pill. Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. <laughs> so you think it was, it is easier. It's an easier way to, for doctors to prescribe, to prescribe a drug rather than, uh, than- I think if you have a mom who walks in, who's at the end of her rope, who's yep. struggled, okay. beat up, beat down, yep. doesn't know where else to turn. Yeah. Um, I think that a doctor wants to do what the be what he thinks is the best that thing that he can. I don't Thank think you. anybody's, there's a malicious intent in it at all. Mm. I just also know that there's a financial gain from drug companies to be able to then 
push these drugs out mm. and make them so accessible and available Absolutely. that uh, a doctor feels like he's doing the right thing. And, and I don't know that there's a, a very clear black and white, wrong answer, right answer. I think there's a lot of gray areas. Mm. And I, here's, the, here's what I know. I found myself in those gray areas and I don't want to live there anymore mm. because when I'm in that gray area, my life is full of misery. It's full of confusion. There's very little direction. And now that I have chosen to step out of it, I now have the ability, but also the responsibility to help pull other people out of that darkness. Nate, this must have been the best way that I heard someone uh, describe the dilemma and the motivations behind actions out there when it comes to prescribing uh, potentially strange drugs to kids none of us wants to harm uh, so as doctors I'll, i'll give you that but from now and then there are other forces at play such in this case resulted with the opiate uh, epidemic in your country oh, yeah. when it came to to oxycodone and it's prescribing and it's it's crazy marketing um we saw that there and yes you're absolutely right the way you described it And it's hard because, uh, I mean, are there many services there that you or your mum could have actually accessed uh, when you were younger? Are there, I mean, what else is there that you don't have to pay yourself? Your mum couldn't afford therapy. Your mum couldn't, didn't probably have the insight to seek that treatment option. So, you know, was, are there public services there that you could have accessed? Yeah, I'm sure if there were, but if there were, I think you hit it. We weren't aware of them mm. or had the foresight to be able to, to look for them. Um, and so, yeah, so I found myself when I went away to college for the very first time, um, you know, I felt like when I was growing up, um, hey, don't do anything wrong because God's watching you and it, and <laughs> you'll get in trouble and he'll punish you if you do anything wrong. And so uh. when I went to college for the first time, I felt like nobody was watching me. And that's when I really started to experiment <laughs> <laughs> because I thought I'm, I'm not going to get in trouble anymore. And I'll tell you, I had a really good time. I had a whole lot of fun. Um, I managed to go to college for four years and that's where I started to get introduced to alcohol and then some of the harder drugs too. And um, it, it, I found myself being a person that uh, had a personality or a drug induced personality. Um, I found myself being the life of the party. All of a sudden I had some commonality with other people, I had something to connect over. I had a tribe, I had a community of people to spend time with. <laughs> and uh, after four years of going away to school and finally hitting pretty much the end of my rope, uh, I found I didn't graduate, but I, I, I needed to get out of that situation. So I moved back in with my parents, moved back in with my mom and dad. And that's the real walk of shame right there. Okay, moving back home with mom and dad, that's 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 a painful move. And I've done it several times since then. But I, I moved back home and uh I knew that I wanted to do something else with my life. I just didn't know what it was. Here I was again, stuck in the same circle of being a kid, wanting to feel significant, not knowing where to turn, going away to college. That didn't work. Well, let me try and start my own business. And so I, I did that for a couple of years. I started my own marketing company. And maybe you've heard these, uh, these stories before of these young hotshot kids who will drop out of college, start their own company and just make it big. 
That is not my story. Okay. I want to be very clear. That never happened to me at all. Uh, I had a little bit of success. I just did a little bit. But what it did open up for me, it was a door that was opened where a friend of mine who owned a bar in downtown Youngstown, Ohio, um, he was thinking about opening up another spot and he invited me to come along and be a part owner in that journey with him. And so now it scratches the business owner scratch that I have, the significance that I want to feel, but it also scratches this party lifestyle that I've started to develop. And um, from there, uh, we took this bar that was a failing business at first into something that was actually to be considered very successful over the course of two years. Um, but that success had a price. It had a price on my health, had a price on my personal relationships. Mm. Uh, my drug addiction skyrocketed at that point because I didn't want to feel anything other than work, 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 work. And, you know, if you, you've heard the term functioning addict before, well, I couldn't function without being an addict. Mm. And, uh, and so I continued to use drugs. And you know what's so interesting is that I finally tasted what the world would call success, at least in my eyes. I had a business that was thriving. I had access to more money than I'd ever seen in my life. Mm. It wasn't a crazy amount of money, but you know, being the poor kid coming up, uh, it felt like a lot to me. Mm. And I, I had the right car. I could get girls. And I felt like this is, I should be happy now, right? Mm. It turns out I wasn't. It turns out there was still a very dark place on the inside of me. Mm. And so I started to try and fill that darkness, that hole with more stuff, with more things. What's the next high? What do I have to chase? And that's when I found myself going to casinos, playing card games, gambling. Uh, that was my second form of addiction. So the first one was the prescription drug cocktail that I was trying to create, what was the right dosage and milligrams and how could I, what could I take from here to how do I get up in the morning, but sleep at night. And if I didn't want to sleep at night, how could I last into the next day without with still being functioning? And, uh, and then the headaches, God, the he I just want the headache to go away. What do I have to take to get rid of this headache? And, and so trying to find navigate that, but then my second addiction was the gambling the casino, the cards, the slot machine, uh, chasing another high. And uh, over the course of a year, I ended up gambling pretty much all of my own personal savings and money away. That's how casinos are built. If you don't know, you go and the, the old adage, the house always wins is, is true. Now you may win from time to time, but the house over a longer, a long enough period of time of will always win. And so I found that out firsthand, just how devastating that could be. Mm. And what's interesting is when my, my personal bank accounts ran out of money, um, I, I made the decision that every addict does. Let's start to find other ways to supplement my addiction. Mm. And so the business bank accounts weren't empty. Um, and so I started I started taking money from those accounts and mm. I didn't, at first I didn't consider it stealing. Well, it's my business, mm. you know, well, at least half of it is. Um, mm. I'm going to pay it back anyways. I mean, we, we will rationalize it with, if, if I win big tonight, huh. I'll pay it back with interest. And how great would that be? It would be good for me. It'll be good for my business partner. It'll be good for my addiction. We'll, we'll all make out. Well, what happens when you don't win? What happens when the money's not there? And so uh, we had about 20 employees that worked for us. 
and uh, it was payday. So we, it was time to cut the checks. Fuck. And so, yeah, I think you already know where this story goes. So my business partner pulls me inside. He says, Hey, it's time to, to pay everybody. And I just came clean at that point. And I said, Hey, listen, uh, if we cut these checks, there's not going to be any of the money in the accounts to cover them. And he was confused and he was upset and he didn't really understand. And then all of a sudden you could see the wave of information starting to hit him Mm. and he realized what was going on. And so he gave me an ultimatum at that point. He said that you can walk away from this business free and clear, sign everything over to me, or I'm going to get lawyers involved and we're going to talk about pressing charges. So I made the decision at 26 years old to walk away from at that point was my life's work. Um, my identity of who I was as a person was wrapped up in being a business owner. And when I didn't have that business anymore, I didn't know who I was. And so, uh, my second walk of shame began. So here I come mom and dad, I'm, I'm coming back home because I don't know what else to do or where else to go. So I went from being at the top of the mountain to being at the bottom of the mountain. Now this wasn't the, the rock bottom of the mountain. It was just, it was just a level that I had fallen to. And so I, uh, I moved back home with mom and dad, could barely hold down a job. The ego that was so prevalent in my mind at that time of how am I supposed to go start over again when I used to be at the top was the thought that kept going over and over in my mind. But, but finally, I mustered enough strength to go become a, a server at a local restaurant. And, and I thought I was swallowing some humble pie, but it was really just me getting over my ego a little bit. And so, but here's the problem is me dealing with this drug and gambling addiction. I would, um, I'd get a job. I would revert back to what I knew, which was stealing from the cash register. I'd get caught and I'd get Uh, fired. Yeah. (laughs) You sound like my mom. Oh no, 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 no. It's just, I feel the cringe. I feel the shame. I feel the guilt, man. We all as addicts, we have all done things that we absolutely hate and you speaking so honest without a mask about it makes me relive some of the things that I have gone through that the, 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 the stuff that typically comes back to you four o'clock in the morning when you wake up and, and quite drenched in, in sweat because you had the, the best of Stefan over the last 30 years. Everything that was cringe-worthy comes back at four o'clock in the morning and you go, shit. <laughs> so that moment I just had but listening yeah. to you. So we all so do you it. understand what I'm going through. Yeah. And so I would, uh, I repeated this process several times. I'd get a job, I'd steal from the cash register, I'd get caught and then fired. And uh, finally, the last time that I had gotten fired from the job, I was walking around my parents' apartment complex where they lived. It was three o'clock in the morning. I'd just taken a handful of pills and I was walking around trying to uh, see if any of the vehicles there were unlocked. Uh, to see if I could find anything that I could get my hands on to sell, to use. And uh, I ended up opening up the car door to one of the vehicles and I stuck my hand into the console, the center console. And as I lifted that up, I found the spare key to one of the cars. And so now I saw this as an opportunity to run away from all of my problems. And so I took this car and I decided in my drug-induced state that I was gonna steal it and I was gonna drive it across the country to a friend's house in Houston, Texas, which is 14 hours away. I was gonna start my life over. I was gonna run away from my problems. But if you've ever tried to run away from your problems before, you know they're, they're pretty fast and it's hard to outrun them, mostly because it's not the problem that's the problem. Yeah. It's you that's the problem. 
And so I packed up five garbage bags of clothes. I threw them in this stolen car and I headed for Texas. And I'll I'll tell you, you know, when you think about stealing a car, you don't think that you're going to steal a 1999 Buick LeSabre. In your mind, you think that you're going to steal this uh, exotic, classic, something fast, something fun. But when you find yourself in the wrong place with the wrong headspace, you never know what is possible. And there I was in the wrong place with the wrong headspace doing something that at one point in my life I thought would have been impossible. You know, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to make one of the worst decisions of my life. I think that we get into this place where we have two really bad choices in front of us. Mm. One feels less painful than the other. And so we move towards that one. But oftentimes the one that feels less painful also leads us to a darker place. And so now we have two more decisions, both painful, both lead to darkness. One is a little less. And so we keep going down. And if we compound those negative decisions over time, we find ourselves in a moment where stealing a car sounds like a good idea. And so that's what I did. And so I headed for Texas. I made it about halfway right outside of a small town around Nashville, Tennessee, um, I would, I wanted to sleep at a gas station just to get a few hours of sleep before I finished the rest of the journey. I mean, I'd been up for three days at this point. I needed to, I needed to get my beauty sleep. I needed to look good if I was going to arrive at my friend's house. And so there I was sleeping. It was 9am and I was woken up to some very loud bangs onto the car window, the car door being pulled open, uh, a stranger's hand reaching in, pulling me out of the car, putting me in handcuffs putting me in the back of a cop cruiser and taking me to jail. And so in this moment, this is when the thought began to flash before my mind. You'll never change. This is who you are. You're never going to get out of this. The second thought was, man, how did I even get here? Because this is not who I ever wanted to be. And so they took me to Cheatham County Jail where I spent six months of my life. And I tell people that six months was actually a gift And it may be one of the best things that's ever happened to me because it gave me an opportunity to, first of all, get clean from any kind of substances that I was taking in my body, whether it was on my own recognizance or not. I didn't have anything inside of my system, but it also gave me an opportunity to think about who I wanted to be when I got out. And when I got out of jail after giving me a felony theft over a thousand. So it turns out you're not allowed to steal cars and drive them across the country. Uh, when I came home, I, I had made up my mind that I wanted to make some changes. And so I got around some people who were doing things differently than what I did. You know, they say that you, uh, we've heard it before, but you're the sum total of the five people that you spend the most time with. So I had to make an, I had to make a conscious decision of the, and I had to take inventory of who are the people that I surround myself with right now. And if the right choices are determined by the right voices. What are the voices that I'm allowing inside of my life? And so when I tell people that they say, so Nate, like, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to cut people off? I'm supposed to walk away from friends. I'm supposed to, for somebody. Yeah. For some of us. Yes, absolutely. You know, if you have 10 friends, there's a good chance that eight of them aren't going to be there when you decide that you're going to go on this journey. And that's okay. And so maybe this is actually permission for somebody watching right now to walk away from a toxic relationship or a toxic friendship or a toxic significant other who's actually pulling you in a direction that you were never meant to go in the first place. There's, I know it's hard and it's painful to do, but if, if you look back in two years from now, you might thank yourself for going through it instead of being uh, upset with yourself for wasting two years. 
And so I had to make some inventory. And so I made some changes. I got around some people who were willing to, even though I was a mess of a person, and let's be honest, I was messy. They were willing to get messy with me. How cool is that to have people, you know, who actually care. Mm -hmm. And I didn't believe that they were actually out there. I didn't believe that there, somebody could care for me after everything that I had done wrong, after all the people that I had taken advantage of, I'd hurt, I'd stolen. I didn't think that there was somebody who would actually care for me. But, you know, I found it in these fellowships. I found it in spirituality. I found it in my own personal church. I found it in getting connected with people who were going in a different direction than the one that I was headed on. Hmm. And it was a beautiful place for me. And it, and it wasn't, I never had this all of a sudden, this one moment where my life completely changed. But what it was is I started to create a vision for my future, a vision for my life that was different from what I had right now. And I got very specific with it. I knew that I wanted it to be um, full of hope. I knew that I wanted it to be full of fulfillment. I knew that. I, and when you ask people this question, what do you want your life to look like? Man, they'll give you generic answers. I just want to be happy. I just want my kids to be taken care of. And I think that that is a given. Those are good things, but they're, they're, they're a given. Most people give generic answers because we've never actually sat down and thought about what we want our future to be. And so I got serious about this. I began to think and write down a vision for what I wanted my future to be. I knew that years ago I wanted to write a book. I didn't know how I was going to, but I knew I was going to have a story that was going to be book worthy. And so now years later, seeing actually have created a book going from dream and concept and idea to actually a physical book that I get to hold it makes me emotional because now I've created some credibility and some trust with myself that I am a man. When I say that I'm going to do something, I do it, but it took me a long time to get there. And like I said, there was never this one aha where I just all of a sudden arrived. But once I had that vision, I started making daily decisions that would add up over a, a long period of time. And when, and think about this, it's like in the beginning, when I made those negative decisions, they compound that compounding effect one after another. Now my decisions compound each other, but they're in a completely opposite direction. Now my decisions are leading towards impact, are leading towards fulfillment, are leading towards helping other people more than I'm helping myself. How easy is it to live a selfish life? It's so easy, but it's so much more rewarding to live a selfless life. And so now I've written this book. I've sat on the board of uh, a nonprofit for underprivileged youth in our community. Me, you know, I got married last year to the love of my wife. I can't believe in there's a woman out there in all of my mess would look at me and say, I love you, but she did. And she's given me the honor of being her husband. And, and so we're, we are creating our own beautiful life together, but it wasn't a, I wake up and all of a sudden I'm on this different person. I, inside I may have been, but it took time for the outside world. You know, John Maxwell says, if I want my world to change, I've got to be the one that changes first. And so that's what I did. I decided that if I'm going to work on anything, I'm going to work on me. There were so many good points there. I think, guys, may I suggest that you stop this interview now go back about 10 minutes and start listening again and really start listening to every single word of Nate because he has distilled it down to the crux of it. You mentioned it all. That is beautiful. But, and whilst you used the words and whilst you clearly said how much work you've put in there, let me guys remind you out there, 
Nate's journey is now four years of being clean. He didn't wake up four years ago with all that insight. He woke up in a mess. Uh, he woke up in jail. He woke up there. May I ask when you hit that rock bottom or that bottom, however, <laughs> however rocky yeah. it is, um, tell me, were there support services in jail that you could access? Were there, was there actually an, an active drug rehabilitation program? More importantly, was there a way for you to, for people to work with you? So when I was in jail, there wasn't a whole lot of resources to me. I was in uh, the backwoods of Tennessee. So this is country. This is rural. This is not a lot of people. Right. And we didn't have a whole lot of resources available to us. Uh, the jail that I was in felt more like a, a holding cell for people before they went away to prison. And so I was more awaiting trial than anything. Right. Uh, but but the one thing that they did offer us was the opportunity to go to what they called a church service. And so for me, it was a chance to, to get out of my cell instead of looking at the same four walls. Cause I, let's be honest, I wasn't interested in going to church. Mm. I wasn't interested in spirituality or God or any of it. At that point, I felt like God had given up on me. He, he certainly didn't care about me. That's for sure. <laughs> and so, uh, but just to get out of my cell, I, I said, yes. And I remember walking down a long hallway to the church service and it, we went off to a side room where there was, again, cinder blocks all around us. But there was 16 folding chairs and us 16 guys, we filed in and we sat down and we're in our orange jumpsuits and we look a mess, man. Our hair's crazy. Our beards are grown out. We don't look good. Orange is not a good color on any man. And so we're, uh, we're, we're, we're all sitting there and in walks this really, really, really old man. And he walks in and he sits down and he pulls out this really, really old guitar. And as he starts to tune it and he strums it up, he says this line, he says, fellas, the only difference between me and you is that I never got caught. And then he starts to play this song. He sings amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. And I'll tell you, looking around the room, there was <laughs> tears streaming down <laughs> all 16 guys' face. <laughs> and it was this beautiful <laughs> moment where uh, I, I describe it as this perfect moment where I wasn't worried about the past. Yeah. I wasn't worried about my future. When am I going to get, when am I going to get out of here? I was content with being right here in the presence. I felt this overwhelming peace and in that moment, I felt this connection, this spiritual waking, whatever it is that you want to call it with God. And I just said, I need to make some changes in my life. God, if you hear me, I need your help. And so now uh, I believe that my life is, is uh, there's God's grace is on it. Some people call it luck. Some people call it karma. I choose to refer to it as undeserved, unmerited favor or God's grace on my life. And so now I feel like that is what's guiding me. I'm constantly leaning into that and it's helping me make decisions that are not always easy, but they're for the benefit of other people more than just myself. Wow. I didn't see that turn of the story coming, um, but it's so beautiful to hear that. Because sometimes 
our insights come from the most unlikely places. Uh, and at least for you, what you expect to happen. Uh, for me, one of the things I will never forget is that about two weeks into my rehab, someone said, you've got a visitor. I said, huh? Uh, and there was one of my technicians who was working with me in the, in the hospital. He made the trip three hours, drove down just to have a coffee with me, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and just be there. Now, I would have never seen that coming, but he just, he was an alcoholic himself, nearly killed a man uh, that led his journey to see, to find God. And through that turn, uh, found uh, sobriety. And he was the guy that I would have never expected to be there for me. The reason I say that is, it just shows that sometimes friends and important people are out there just waiting to be there for you. You typically rule them out because you focus on your drinking buddies or your mm -hmm. using buddies or your gambling buddies, whatever these so-called buddies are. And I certainly can assure you as soon as you get clean, yeah, 80%, 90% of them just they don't want to know anything about you because they have chosen you because you were part of a world that pretends that it's absolutely normal to get plastered or take drugs, etc. The moment you do no longer fit that bill, you have lost your purpose. You have lost your right to be in their facade, in their mask, in their, their pretend uh, universe. Um, they all want to, to have the same things. They all want less pain in their life. That's why they're using, that's why they're doing what they are doing. And uh, it, they don't want to be reminded that this is probably not so clever. So therefore you will be ostracized. You will be thrown out of the tribe. And that is probably the best thing that could have ever happened to you because my, my, my life condensed pretty smartly uh, into very few people. But that suddenly also stopped the noise and suddenly you've got time to think and time to think, who are you? Who is the real Nate? Who is the real Stefan? And I didn't have an answer. For the better part of a year, I was an empty shell. Did you experience something similar? Or did the inside of purpose of, of going a certain direction, did that materialize early on in you? Yeah, so I think that for me, it I had to take a look on the inside and actually start to evaluate and ask some of the hard questions. Mm. You know, we, we, Tim Ferriss says that everything that we want in life is on the other side of an uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> and so uh, I had to have some uncomfortable conversations with myself and the, the, the relationship that's most important to me in my life is my one with God. But, but outside of that, the relationship that I have with myself is extremely important. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who talks behind your back and they're more like a frenemy than they are a real friend. Um, but when you don't like you, when you use negative language to you, when you actually hate the person that you are, it's like spending time with a frenemy. It's like spending time with someone who you hate, but you can't get away from. 
And so I had to look at a past version of myself. I had to sit down with me and I looked at him and I got real. I got very raw. And I said, you suck. I hate you. Why did you do this? And I, I really started to unload onto him, but I, I knew I didn't want to stay there. It was okay to be there, but I didn't want to stay there. And so I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, even with every mistake you've made, I still love you. And from that love, I choose to forgive you. And out of that forgiveness, I started to repair the relationship that I had with myself. And I can't help but wonder what some of our lives would look like if we actually looked at ourselves and said, it's okay. It is okay. I know. Listen, we've been beating ourselves up long enough. We've been hurting ourselves. We've kept ourselves in this mental prison for a long enough. I choose to release you. I choose to forgive you. I choose to say that it's okay. And that was the beginning of me repairing the relationship with me. And then I, I had a second conversation with myself, but it was with present Nate. It was right now, right now, Nate. And I looked at him and I said, you have made some changes that nobody else has seen yet. The inside of you is different, but nobody else believes in you yet, but I do. And I started to coach myself and encourage myself and tell myself that it was going to be okay and uplift myself, even when nobody else around me was there to do it. And then I looked at future Nate. I looked at him and, and what he was capable of doing and who he was capable of becoming. And I made this promise to him. I said, whatever it takes to give you the life that you deserve, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to have uncomfortable conversations. I'm willing to start at the bottom. And by the way, there's something very beautiful about being at the bottom because you get to choose the direction of your life now. Instead of having someone else tell you what you're going to do and where you're going to go, you now get to have this restart where you can build your life brick by brick by brick. And so I told him, whatever it takes to give you the life that you deserve, I'm willing to get down and dirty in the mud and figure it out. And then from there, I was actually able to build trust with myself, build some self-confidence. I don't know if you've ever had somebody come up to you who uh, is like sharing what they're going to do. They're, they're, they're telling you their dream, or maybe they want to tell you what they're going to accomplish. And they look at you and the whole time you're kind of just nodding your head and you're, you're very agreeable with them. And yes, yeah, okay. Very exciting. Okay. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, yeah, there's no way this is ever going to happen. <laughs> It's because that person doesn't have any credibility built up. They don't have any trust, right? And so for me, I started to build credibility with myself. And the only way that I could do that was by being consistent because mm. consistency is what creates Perfect. credibility. But in, here's the thing about consistency. It's not sexy. It's not fun. It's not exciting, but is what you repeatedly do day after day after day after day. And that consistency over time, doing the work little by little creates big results over time. And so I built this consistency, this credibility with myself. And from there, I was actually able to trust myself, which was a huge thing for me because I didn't trust who I was. But then once I had trust, that blossomed into self-confidence. And so the man that you're seeing now in front of you, who is full of self-confidence and believes in himself and, and trusts who I am, well, it started from the very beginning, which was ultimately forgiving myself. And so for me, this inner work had to start to happen before my outer work was able to be completed. An absolute beautiful, beautiful, beautiful summary. But you didn't, you didn't just oh, there it is, the vision, everything, uh, the, all the beautiful things that you have just described. 
who were the people or the system that helped you? Initially, yeah. you were using some some terminology that was AA, that was or NA. Um, did you did you seek help through that, or did you seek help through another system? So great question. So yes, all of it, everything. I wanted all of it. <laughs> so I, I I got connected to a church that helped me walk my spirituality out. Huh. I got connected with an AA and an NA fellowship that helped yeah. me walk out my sobriety and understand the steps, taking the steps program. Hmm. I got a mentor in my life, which I think there's is such an underutilized tool that we all have access to. Hmm. We have someone in our lives who is a little bit farther along than ourselves hmm. that we can grab onto. And I just made this decision that I wanted to become the best version of myself in multiple areas of my life and in, in my, my relationships, my sobriety, mm. my spirituality, my finances, which I took me a lot. Like if you've been in active addiction, you know how much money you waste and spend and uh, the, the financial toll that it takes on you. Uh, and so I wanted to be committed to correcting some of those and, and ultimately making amends through that too and, and paying others back who I've manipulated, taken advantage from and, and stolen uh, from. So, yeah, so I was in uh, several fellowships, uh, people I'm still connected with to this day. I actually get the opportunity now to go to different recovery centers in the United States across the country Beautiful. and share my story. And the really cool thing is, is what I've been able to do is I've been able to partner with other people who are willing to pay it forward and buy a copy of the book that I just wrote for, so that I can give it away for free in these recovery centers. And so that's mm. been the big mission, the initiative that I've started right now is this pay it forward opportunity. And that's been the passion point for me right now. Mm. Which is beautiful. Now your book is soon being released. When is the release date? So the book will be available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible on June 1st. Beautiful, beautiful. So not long to wait, guys. Uh, 17th of May today, so please. By the time this interview airs, it will probably be just out there. So here you have got it from straight from the horse's mouth, straight the, the facts are there. Cool. No, I can't wait. I can't wait for this book to come out because it is your journey and, and you have condensed it beautifully into a into some very good tips and very good thoughts. I think the key message that you guys hear out there is the connection. It is, we, Nate and I both have stopped hiding. We have both done the walk of shame repeatedly, in your case with your parents, in my case with work, with uh, being open to the world about my struggles. And that is the hardest thing. This brutal taking inventory uh, at a step four in the AA system is absolutely brutal because you're actually looking deep into your soul and you're putting a searchlight in there and you're figuring out what has been driving your actions. And that's typically negative emotions. And then the next step is, okay, what has caused these emotions? Mm. So you're now really digging deep and you're looking at the, the programming that is happening deep inside yourself that is often laid down in your childhood, that is often uh, just, you know, it's like a, like a curse being being 
a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're doing actually exactly those things. And very quickly, after two, three times, your brain says, yeah, of course, you know, that's you. That's your applied. Bloody Nate, you fucking blah, blah, blah. And then the negative talk comes and then the shame comes worse and the guilt comes worse and it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. You will never change. And that's exactly it. Who says that? Who determines that the past does, does somehow mean the future for you? That I am I'm proud of where I've been. I'm not proud of my actions, don't get me wrong. I'm proud of where I've been and what happened to me. I'm proud of the actions that I took in the last seven years, every single day. I call them micro habits in, in Steps to Sobriety where I'm actually doing little things, but consistently, little things every day. I look after my nutrition, I look after my, my hydration, I look after my own time. I give myself time out and I give myself permission to not be my best. As a doctor, I'm always striving to up there, up there, up there. But equally, I, I have learned that I can't always be right. I can't always avoid mistakes. I can put plans in place to, to prevent that. And it's the same with life. This is, yes, I want sunshine and everything. Rest assured, it bloody well rains a lot in my life. Um, and I can't do anything about it. I can just roll with the punches. But luckily, nowadays, I have learned how to cope and how to deal with challenges without going back to the, ah, poor me, poor me, poor me, another one, or gambling, or any of the other things that we do to to soften the blow, soften the pain. And that is exactly, so I, I, so many of your words, Nate, rang a bell with me. And I think your book will be a, a beautiful, beautiful help to so many people out there because you're opening up about your journey. You show that there is hope out there. Something I did not believe when I was at the, at the height of my addiction. I was an empty shell and there was no way that I could see a way out. And without the, the actions of my wife who behind my back organized an admission to a rehab hospital, uh, I, well, I, I dread to think what the outcome would have been. Either like you in jail or it would have been probably death. So there are only, I mean, it's easy for us as addicts. There are only three outcomes. You either get your shit together or you're in jail or you're dead. That's, that's easy, you know. Essentially, life comes down to, to <laughs> three endpoints. Hey, <laughs> at least you don't have to worry and wonder. Um, but we both have chosen the light. And we both have chosen to speak out at this time in our lives because it's a speaking out, showing others that there is hope. That is so important. And for that, I commend you, Nate. For that, I thank you. For that, I will be delighted to buy your book and and uh, review it. And and I'm, I'm, I can't wait, actually. So, no, that's so cool. Nate, I'm, I'm humbled and grateful that you came onto my show. There are no two ways around that. 
Stefan, thank you so much for having me. This has been an incredible experience. I have very much enjoyed our conversation together. You're very insightful. You have wisdom beyond your years. And there's people that need to continue to hear what you have to say, because these are important conversations. And the fact that you've created a safe space for these conversations to happen, um, it's rare, but there has to be a way where we make this um, more common where this, this is a common practice, where conversations like this happen because they need to. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's your book, for example, that could lie on the kitchen table uh, and uh, with teenage kids there. And you could actually say, hey, look, I just started reading this book and maybe read out a chapter loud or a story loud and then ask the kids, what do you think about that? And then shut up and listen, actually. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So those kind of things. That's, that might be a starting point. Or it might be something that, that uh, you leave around at work. I remember I came back from, from Christmas holidays last year. And uh, the, I was in a changing room. A surgeon walked in. And he said, oh, what did you do? No, did you get up to something nice? And I said, well, yeah, I wrote a book. He said, oh, cool, what about? And I said, my steps to sobriety. And he looked at me, what did you do that for? I thought, oh, that's a funny reaction. And I said, well, it is something I felt I needed to do. And, you know, that's it. And he sort of grumbled, mumbled, and, and went into his theater, and I went into my theater. And I thought, that was strange. A few hours later, I had a text on my phone, Stefan, can we talk? Um, I'm in trouble with alcohol, etc. And uh, he had just lost his marriage. And it was that the simple fact that I opened up and said, here, yeah, you know, that's what I've done. The simple fact that you wow. show this book, um, wow. that's right. That's right. And it was just the sheer fact he bought my book and he, he, liked, the, he liked what he read. And he's nowadays clean. And he got his shit together. And it's just amazing how, how we can sometimes help others by actually just being open. And that is what you are doing, Nate. And you will touch lives. I hopefully will touch more lives. And the more seeds we can plant into the, the brains of others to, to give them hope, to assure them that there is actually help out there if you just accept it and just look out for it and surround yourself with the right people and do the right little actions that then have the compound interest. And before long, you live a life that you never dreamt of. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Yes, we will change. And yes, you guys can change out there. There's no two ways around it. And by Nate's book, um, it will be uh, an eye opener. No two ways around it. Now, I just need to put a little bit of a label for me in as well. Steps to Sobriety uh, is off the market in its first version. So behind me are the, the last print copies that are in existence uh, because we have worked hard behind the scenes to uh, write a second edition, which will come out in July. So not long to wait now. And I'm all excited and I will, I'll tell you more about my book on this channel here. But uh, look forward to a new and revamped version where um, I'm demystifying 
to addiction and uh, breaking to taboos. We are actually talking about about mental health, and I will give you heaps of, of action plans that you can take to get yourself sorted. So now these are exciting times. Uh, but first things first, so if you do every month a book, I think that's a really good idea. So start in June with Nate, then come back in July, take mine, and we're going to take it from there. <laughs> Nate, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really, really, really grateful. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. No trouble at all. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Stay strong. Okay. Bye. Dream.